We see Israel in the news. Constant crises facing the Jewish state. Seems about the only thing the UN ever really talks about is Israel, right? We see Israel in history. From the Crusades, down to the Holocaust, down to today. Israel is on the world stage. We see Israel in the Bible. Almost all of it, in fact, you could say all of it, is about Israel. And yet there is one glaring place that we do not see much of Israel or much of the Jews, and that is in the church. And isn't that an odd thing to consider? As we have seen through these these pages, this is a problem that the New Testament knows about and addresses several times with great agony of heart that the Messiah has come and Israel, in large measure, has missed him. In fact, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about answering this question. This is the most detailed section of Scripture on what's going on with Israel in New Testament times. And in chapter 9 and 10, Paul has really set the stage. And chapter 11 is where we're going to get the answer to these questions. So to remind you of where we've been in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he begins by lamenting the fact that the Jews have rejected Christ. They crucified him, first of all. They were the first persecutors of the church. And everywhere Paul went, the Jews in the synagogues did not want anything to do with the message, while the Gentiles did. And Paul laments that. And then he begins to answer the question, does that mean that God has abandoned them? And how can God do this to them? And he says, listen, God can choose whoever he likes, whether it's Gentiles or Jews. He can harden whoever he likes, whether Gentiles or Jews. And then in chapter 10, he explains, they've heard the gospel, but they've rejected it. So there's really nobody to blame but them for their rejection of the gospel. And then he's going to turn to chapter 11. So he's begun by acknowledging the problem, saying, first of all, if this is what God has done, God can do what he likes. Second of all, he points out to the fact that this is really on them. It's not as though they were ready to receive Jesus and then didn't. And then chapter 11 is where we get some answers. This is a must-know chapter of the Bible. You've got to know Romans chapter 11. It is a huge doctrinal pinnacle in the Bible. It explains Israel's past their present, and their future. And I don't know if I can think of many more loaded subjects than Israel or the Jews. Everybody has an opinion on Israel, right? And sometimes these opinions range from very positive, even to the point of being fawning and cringeworthy, to the other side where they're dismissive or or even hostile to the Jews and to Israel. There are certain people that, if for some reason, they, they think that you're, you're fine with them whispering things about the Jews that you wish they would have just kept to themselves. We've got to see what God has to say. And I've realized lately, I say this a lot in my introductions, but I think I'm okay with that, that there's all kinds of opinions about X subject, but we're only interested in what God has to say. That's a pretty good way to go through life, don't you think? So, today's message, Romans 11 is, is a unit, and so it's kind of hard to break it up because... When I go through this section, all I want to do is jump immediately to the next two and finish Paul's thought. We're going to get there, but we're going to establish each point in turn very plainly and clearly. And today's message has one simple point to make. God is not finished with Israel. Say that again. God is not finished with Israel. There is a lot more to know, but that is the opening point that Paul makes. He kind of says, whatever our conclusions are, we're going to put the boundary here. 
This is a line we don't cross. God has not abandoned Israel. So today, all we're doing is establishing that very basic point. Next week will be about, all right, well, then what is God doing right now with all these Gentiles? We'll explain that. And then the following week will be, what's going to come later? What's the future of these people? So we're going to get into this starting at uh, verse 1 and then a little part of verse 2 here. I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. He says, I ask then, this is the Greek word un, it looks backwards to what Paul has been saying. So in light of everything I said, let me ask this rhetorical question. And these previous chapters have caused us to question God's continued faithfulness to Israel, to the Jews. The very last thing he said in chapter 10, he's quoting from Isaiah when he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He says that verse is being fulfilled right now. So then is God done with them? Is that it? If they're disobedient and contrary? Well, he answers that with an emphatic by no means. We've talked about this. Paul uses this phrase a lot in Romans. This is the Greek megenoita, which literally would be may it never be. May that never exist. The older translations had God forbid, which is not a literal translation, but it sure gets the punch of what he's saying. So has God rejected his people? By no means. God forbid. You'd have to be crazy to think that. That's what Paul is saying. And I think right there, we got to take that to heart. Now Paul asks this question, has God rejected his people? And he comes in with an immediate, no. No, he has not. So then, we need to define some terms here. When he says his people, who's he talking about? It might seem obvious to you, and I think it is, but there are several doctrinal systems that come at this and try to give you something different. So let's look at this. When he says his people, he is referring to ethnic, that is national Israel. We are referring to actual Jews, the actual nation of Israel, not some spiritualized definition of the church. Ethnic, national Israel. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why we think that. Again, it should be very obvious to you. First of all, is the context of this passage. The whole section began in Romans 9, verse 3, with Paul talking about my kinsmen according to the flesh. So he's not talking about God's people inclusive of Jews and Gentiles, as he does in some places. He's made it very clear that this section is about his kinsmen according to the flesh, blood relatives, ethnic national Israel. Number two is the illustration he gives right here. Has God rejected his people? No, I myself am a Christian, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. We're talking about family here, ethnic, national Israel. Also, let's look at simplicity here. Why would he mean anything else? Look at the whole tone of the Bible. When we talk about God's chosen people, we know who they are. You learned that in VeggieTales. Israel is God's chosen people. And to give a little defense here, people say, well, Romans 9 verse 7 says that not everyone who is from Israel belongs to Israel. And Galatians 3 verse 7 says that not every descendant of Abraham is of the flesh, but are of the spirit. In those passages, Paul is talking about the remnant. He's saying it's not enough 
to be a descendant of Israel. He's not saying there's no such thing anymore as a descendant of Israel. It's like those passages where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not saying that male and female don't exist. He's saying when it comes to salvation, that doesn't matter. So you can't import the point he's making there to the very different point he's making here. So that's important to recognize. So I think it's very plain and very clear that when he says his people, and when we read the word that says Israel, funnily enough, it means Israel. Israel. Ethnic, national Israel. The Jews. So then, God has not abandoned the Jews. God has not abandoned Israel, whom he foreknew. And I don't think this is so much talking about foreknowledge from before time. I think this is Paul talking about the people he knew before any of this happened with Jesus on the cross. And he's pulling this word for abandoned, for rejected. It's the same word that Samuel used in 1 Samuel 12, 22. This is when Israel demanded a king and they got a king. And then the Lord, remember this story? He sent thunder and lightning from heaven to ruin their crops to let them know he wasn't happy about it. And they said, oh no, what have we done? But in 1 Samuel 12, 22, the prophet said, for the Lord will not forsake. In the Greek translation, the Septuagint, it's the same word Paul uses here. The Lord will not forsake, reject his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So then, based on Romans 11, Whatever we see with our own eyes, the Bible has made it clear that God has not given up on Israel. And as far as Samuel was concerned, God won't give up on you because he didn't choose you because of you. He chose you for his namesake, for his glory, for his purposes. It pleased him. And God's purposes are not to be changed. We'll read this later in Romans chapter 11. So then God has not rejected his people. What does this mean? What is this promise that God has made to the children of Abraham? What is it that God has not cast them off from? Genesis chapter 12, we get the first promise that God made to Abraham. And God would elaborate on this in great detail in later passages, but this first one kind of sums it all up very nicely for us. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the initial promise that was only expanded upon and confirmed as time went on in the Old Testament. There's five things you can notice there. What is this promise? What is this covenant that God has made with the Jews? Number one, to be their God. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the first one. Number two, promise them the land of Canaan. It's impossible to escape the fact that in the old covenant, they very much understood their promise to the Lord to be tied to the land of Israel. Number three, he promised them many descendants, more than you could possibly count. Number four, just general blessing. I will bless you. I will prosper you wherever you go. And number five, through you, I will bring salvation to the world. That's the promise. And I hope you notice, these are very real, tangible, national promises. There are spiritual aspects to them, but when God called Abraham, he was calling a nation. We saw this going through Exodus. The covenant and the, the Torah is all about jurisprudence. It's about running a country. This is what God was doing. 
to give them land, to give them descendants, to bless the population. And that is exactly how the Old Testament and the New, but all the Old Testament interprets this. When God is blessing his people, they are receiving tangible promises. Not, oh, it doesn't matter if you're in the land because you're in my land in your heart. No, very much was it tied to the boundaries of Israel, for example. And I say this, making it very plain that this is the Jews themselves and that these promises are real and tangible because... There are many who want to spiritualize and then strip away these promises because of what Christ did on the cross. You have what you call replacement theology, which is everything that God promised the Jews is no longer for the Jews, but now it's for the church, which is the new Israel. And every time you read Israel in the Old Testament, you should think church. That is simply not what the Bible gives us. It is true that we now foretaste the kingdom of God in spirit, but that does not nullify the actuality of these promises. Jesus did not come and take the way these promises made have always been understood and interpreted and believed and flip them on their head and say, just kidding, no more land for you. That was never part of it. That was never real. Uh, you no, know, I'm not going to bless your, your people anymore. That was, that was just spiritualized. And now that I've come, we're not doing this anymore. When they asked, when the disciples asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What did Jesus say? It is not for you to know the times. He said, I'm not going to tell you when. He didn't say, guys, you're thinking about it all wrong. There is no kingdom coming for Israel. He said, you're, you, first of all, that's coming later, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. Second of all, you need to focus on the mission of evangelism, which is coming up. But the point I'm making there is that Jesus did not correct the disciples when they asked about the coming actual kingdom. Not the kingdom of heaven is wherever Christians go. That's true. But do you actually know that that is a lesser thing? That we are waiting for the day when Jesus comes and actually establishes a literal kingdom on the earth? Ruling and reigning from where? Jerusalem. When a Jew will rule the world and we are part of his kingdom and everywhere we go, in a sense, yes, the kingdom comes. We read about it in Romans 8 that we have tasted the first fruits. But remember, he said creation is still groaning, that we are waiting, that this is not the ideal situation, as we will discuss in a few more weeks here. I mean, look at the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. If you're going to say God has stripped this away, God has taken away Israel's place, how about in Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11, when he says, He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Forever he remembers it, an everlasting covenant. And specifically there, the psalmist calls out the land as the promise. So the Old Testament repeatedly tells us that God is not going to change his mind on this. And then Paul comes in here and says, has God rejected his people? Meaning, has God changed the deal with Israel? And he says, by no means, no I know it's weird that the church is almost entirely Gentile, he says, but that is not how we conclude that God is done with the Jews. So whatever conclusions you want to draw theologically later, the nullification of Israel's promise and covenant 
is off the table. That's not within the bounds of possibility because Paul makes it very clear here. So we get into verse 2, the second half of verse 2 down to verse 6. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So we say, okay, I get it. God has not rejected his people. But Paul, the Jews have almost wholesale rejected their Messiah. I know you're the apostle to the Gentiles and you're Jewish and all the 12 apostles are. And, and there's a lively church at the time of the writing in Jerusalem. But I mean, the Gentiles are quickly overtaking them. So what do we do with that? Well, Paul, again, refers to the idea of a remnant. We've already looked at this. Back in chapter 9, verses 27 through 29, he said God reserved for himself a remnant. That no matter how dark things got in Israel's history, God kept a remnant of people. And he says, of which I am one. And he uses the illustration of Elijah. This is the story where Elijah came out of the wilderness. He went up to Mount Carmel and he called down fire from heaven to consume the offering. We all love that story, right? And then all the, the false prophets were killed. And God finally sent rain upon the land. But then Jezebel sent a letter to Elijah and said, You're dead, pal. I don't care if your God beat my God. You embarrassed me, and I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, at that point, fled into the wilderness. He went back to Mount Sinai and asked for God to end his life. He said, Lord, I thought this was going to be the moment that would turn everything around and nothing has changed. I'm the only one left in the whole world, Lord. You ever feel that way? You watch too much news, and you're like, there's no, there's no one left. Then you come to church, you're like, well, there's a few of us, I guess. The Lord said to Elijah, this is 1 Kings 19, 18, he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, Elijah, not only are you not the only one, there's a ton of you. I have seen to it that there is a remnant. So Elijah was wrong. As bleak and desperate as things looked, he was wrong. God had kept a remnant. So Paul is saying these times in which we live are like that time, wherein there was the greatest demonstration of God's power the world had ever seen, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet it did not result in widespread conversion of the Jews. So we feel like Elijah and we go, that must be it for us then. He goes, no, Elijah needed to be put in his place. And so do we, if that's what we think. He says, if God had entirely rejected Israel, none of them would be saved. But of course, some of them are. Paul says, of course, I'm the first example of that. And he said, but what they did was so bad. How could God possibly, what does he say? It is by grace, not works. Are you going to say that everybody else gets saved by grace and it doesn't matter what they did, but the Jews have a special case where they need a special repentance in order to overcome? No, it's all by grace. It's all on God. God is the one that has brought this about. He's the one that reaches out to save. That's important to know, by the way, and I'm not going to get off on this. Jews are not saved any differently than Gentiles are. 
Sometimes we think that there's like an extra step that they have to go. No, it's all grace. Amen? It's good to know that. So the teaching Paul gives us here disallows us from viewing the belligerence of the Jewish religion or the widespread apostasy of the Israelite people as evidence for their rejection by God. It means it doesn't matter what this or that rabbi says. It doesn't matter what the religious demographics of the nation of Israel are. It doesn't matter what has happened in history. None of that counts as evidence that God has rejected the Jews. Because that's exactly what happened in Elijah's day. And he was very, very wrong. Consider Exodus 32. We studied this passage on Wednesday not long ago. When the golden calf was built, there's a burning, flaming mountain up there. And they said, let's build a cow and worship that. And God was ready to torch the people. He told Moses, you stay up here. I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. Just like the flood, right? I'm going to start over with you like I started over with Noah. But in Exodus 32, Moses jumped into the gap and begged. Exodus 32, 13 and 14. He said, Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Remember, depending on grace, not them. You swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Even the golden calf was not beyond God's grace. And Moses said, I know they've wrecked it, but it's not dependent on them, is it, Lord? You're the one that swore by your own name. I don't call upon their faithfulness. I call upon your faithfulness to deliver them. And it's the same thing today. Very often when I get in these conversations, people want to start talking about, well, don't you know what the Jews say and believe? And don't you know what they've done in Israel? And don't you know about this and that? None of that counts, according to Paul, because it's by grace, not by works. Israel has been at this place before. And God always provided a remnant for himself. Even at Mount Sinai, the Levites were still faithful unto the Lord. And that's why he redeemed them and gave them the portion of serving in the Lord's house. Therefore, according to Paul, if God has preserved a remnant of his people, as he has in the past, and he has, that means there are still those in the Jewish nation who retain a claim on the promises of God made in the Old Testament. You've got to hear that. That there are those that are a remnant of God's people, Israel, who still have a claim on the promises that he made to Abraham. What then is verse 7? Okay, so God has not rejected his people. He's preserved a remnant among his people who are representative and carry the torch of his faithful covenant to them. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, verse 7. The elect obtained it. That is the elect from within the nation of Israel. Don't think all of God's elect, the elect Jews here. The ones he chose obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What then? 
So he's, okay, I know that God has not rejected his people. He's retained a remnant. But what then? As in, what are we to make of the Jewish rejection of Jesus? That's the whole question these chapters is trying to answer. He claims that Israel failed to achieve their goal. This is a reference back to chapter 10, verse 3. He said they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is, they did not submit to Christ and his work on the cross. But they sought to establish their own. They were trying to establish saving righteousness through their law, through their traditions, through their own way. And they failed they failed because you can never, as we read through the first couple chapters of Romans, you cannot establish your own righteousness through works. No one can. That's not unique to Israel. But they failed to submit to God's righteousness provided in Jesus Christ on the cross. So other than the elect, that is that remnant we just talked about, other than them, the rest were hardened. You need to feel the weight of that. Because when we think of God hardening somebody's heart, who do we think of? Pharaoh. When God was delivering these same people out of Egypt, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul says, now it has come to the place where except for the remnant that God has faithfully preserved, the rest have had their heart hardened in the same way as Pharaoh. And he quotes here from two Old Testament passages. The first one is Isaiah 29, verse 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. This is part, of course, of a longer section where God is rebuking the people for their sins, specifically in this passage, their drunkenness and their debauchery. And God tells them that I am using the preaching of Isaiah to numb you to the truth. This is what God told Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 10. Remember that great passage? Here am I, send me. And the Lord tells him, sending you is not going to be a message of deliverance. It's going to be a message of judgment. He said, preach and make these people's eyes dim and their ears blocked up so that they cannot hear. God says, your sins are so awful. I'm going to send Isaiah to preach to you. But as he preaches to you and you continue to reject it, you're going to become accustomed to the medicine, so to speak, so that it doesn't do anything for you anymore. And you're going to be further confirmed in your sins. That's that spirit of stupor. And then in the next verse is from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is a messianic psalm, meaning it is a prophetic psalm looking forward to the Messiah. And in this psalm, the Messiah, Jesus, although he's not named, of course, back then, is crying out to God to judge the people who put him on the cross. It's an imprecatory psalm. And this psalm was seemed to have been a favorite of the New Testament church because they quote it all the time in the New Testament. This is where we get the verse, zeal for your house has consumed me, which is what the disciples thought of when they saw Jesus turning over tables in the temple. This is where we get the verse, let another take his office, which is the verse they used for replacing Judas with Matthias in the book of Acts. This is where it says, sour wine and gall they gave me to drink which was fulfilled by Jesus on the cross when they offered him sour wine. So messianic Jesus psalm. And it includes this verse where the oppressed one, the Messiah, cries out and says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. 
And so what we see from Isaiah 29 verse 10 and from Psalm 69 is that the ministry of Jesus, in fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus, served the same purpose, which was to harden the hearts of the people of Israel. Mark chapter 4 verses 10 through 12. When Jesus first started preaching in parables, this is something you got to know. The parables were not part of the early part of Jesus' ministry. He was preaching things like the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, very obvious, clear. And then there came a point where he started preaching in parables. And it was so weird that in Mark chapter 4, verse 10, it says, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, as in, what is this all about? Why are you telling all these weird stories and then not explaining what they mean? Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then he quotes from Isaiah, that indeed they may see but not perceive, and they indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Can I tell you something? Jesus speaking in parables was not his way of giving clever illustrations so that people understood the message better. The opposite of that is true. Jesus spoke in parables and then did not explain them. Jesus just came out and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed of all, and then it grows into a really big tree. Let's close in prayer. That's why people didn't understand what he was talking about. He gave the parable of the sower, but didn't explain it until later when they came and asked him. He would just say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl beyond price that a man sold everything to obtain. Man, what do you think Jesus is talking about? This is why when Jesus spoke to them plainly, sometimes they couldn't even receive it because he was always talking in these weird stories. The point was what? That if somebody was sincere enough to come and ask and inquire further, he'd explain it. But if somebody was on the outside and was just looking to find a way to get at him, they wouldn't learn anything. He was hardening the hearts of the people by his ministry. He was exposing their legalistic religion and confirming them in their sin through his ministry and through his teaching. Then in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, he said this. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The capstone of the hardening of the hearts of Israel was Passion Week where Jesus came in and allowed himself to be heralded as king. So there's no excuse anymore. You know who this guy is. And yet they still put him on the cross. And so he says, this is going to lead to the desolation of your house. When Israel rejected Jesus, God hardened their hearts. That is why so few Jews are saved even to this day. And Deuteronomy, the covenant itself, made it clear that rebellion against the Lord would lead to exile. What greater rebellion is there than to crucify the Holy One of Israel himself? To crucify Messiah. To say things like, we have no king but Caesar, or his blood be upon us and on our children. And so their rebellion led 
to exile. In 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, which is a significant number, by the way, 40 years is the number of judgment. In 70 AD, Roman general and later Caesar Titus destroyed Jerusalem. He sacked the temple, he scattered the people, and left it desolate. Forty years after Jesus came and arose and went to heaven. And since that day, the Jewish presence in the church has been a negligible number. Almost all of them are Gentiles. And that is why we have these chapters here. Our conclusion becomes, God has not rejected Israel... He has maintained a remnant that retain a claim on his promises, but the rest have had their hearts hardened for the crime of the cross. It's a sobering thing, isn't it? It's a sobering passage of scripture. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 9, I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart for my people. The house is desolate and Gentiles Taste the blessings that God promised to Israel. We're the ones celebrating the Messiah. We're the ones that are experiencing his salvation. But, as Paul said, the promise is still in effect. And if that is the case, then we ought to expect something to change in the future. Israel has been in this place before. They've been exiled before. They were driven out of the land for 70 years. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament were writing and speaking to warn them that this is coming. So if they are in the same state today, which Jesus said and Paul said they are, then those prophecies become relevant again. And not only that, if you go and read some of those prophecies, you see that not only do they remain relevant, they remain unfulfilled in many cases. There are times where these prophets are speaking very specifically about what's happening in their day. And then it will just, you've read this, transport to another level. Where now we're talking about the stars falling out of heaven and the mountains being laid waste. Look at example for Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. That's the exile. Hosea wrote before the exile. But then look at what he says in verse 5. Afterward, so after the exile, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea said in the last days, Israel will return from exile Call upon the Lord, call upon David their king, and who is Jesus? The son of David. And they shall return to his goodness in the last days. Not only did the previous return from exile not happen in the last days, they never sought David their king. Because David their king came and they nailed him to a cross. Which means Hosea's words remain to be realized. They re-entered the exile state. There are some theologians that will argue that the exile never really ended. I don't know if I would take it quite that far. But there's a point to be made there. That they were exiled. They returned. But David and David's sons never sat on the throne. Even for the short 75 years where they ruled themselves, it was the priests 
that were ruling Israel, the Hasmonean kings. This is one of the main reasons the Pharisees arose, because they knew that it was wrong for somebody who was not the son of David to sit on the throne. And then when the son of David came, they killed him. But that means that the words of Hosea remain in effect. That afterward, in the last days, which we're living in and looking for, they shall return, seek the Lord their God, seek David their king, that is, recognize and acknowledge the Messiah, and then come in fear to the Lord and his goodness. There is no definite time given to this present desolation of Israel. Jeremiah gave the first one a definite time period, 70 years, one year for every Sabbath year they missed, 70 But as we're going to see, the timeline for this one is when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. As in, when God finishes his work of evangelizing the world. So there's no definite time. But you and I are blessed to live in a time where we can start to see, like Elijah saw, a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising up out of the sea. Meaning it's not raining yet, but we're seeing the beginnings. In 48 A.D., After the Holocaust, after the worst oppression of Israel ever, Israel became a nation again. The Jews came back into the promised land in a land called Israel. And there they stand to this day. Do you realize that you are living in the first century since before the Bible was finished where the Jewish people are living in the promised land? That's pretty radical, isn't it? And all these things that talk about when Israel does this in the last days and when the temple is done and when this happens in Jerusalem, you are living in the first generation where those actually make some sense? Because there it is. There they are. They're surrounded by their enemies. They're struggling for a divided land. They have no temple. They have no priesthood. But there is a Jewish state called Israel in existence today for the first time since 70 AD. Anybody getting a little excited when you hear that? This tells me, without giving any date or definite timeline, because Jesus told us it is not for us to know, But it tells me that the time is near when God will begin to redeem his wayward people. He's already started to gather them back and bring them into the land. And they're slowly, slowly pushing back against their enemies and gaining ground. God is working to redeem his wayward people. And I will pause to say here, they are still wayward people. We need to make no mistake about that. Romans 11.28, without taking this too far, Romans 11.28 says that the Jews are our enemies concerning the gospel. This means we love them, but they are violently opposed to the gospel. And as that is the case, we must oppose and disagree and stand against them if necessary. So I want to make sure we don't romanticize that. There can be this weird like Christian fascination and fixation with Judaism And like that to be a real Christian, you've got to be real Jewish. No. Galatians makes that abundantly clear. And in fact, very often, here's a stronger warning I'll give you. Many people in their love for Israel go beyond in their love for Israel and the Jews to a love for Judaism and the Jewish traditions, which are not according to the teaching of Jesus Christ. So many of those things that came later They were written directly and specifically to oppose the doctrines of Jesus Christ. 
People will even look at the, the intertestamental period and look at the writings that came up there and use them to interpret the Old and New Testament, which has limited value. But you must remember, big part of what Jesus came to do was blow up all of that. And say your traditions are wrong. And so people that want to come into the, to the, the Jewish people and almost like bow down and worship them as a higher class of Christians somehow, or even as if, well, do they really need to be saved? Yes. Do you hear me on that? It's not enough to be Hebrew. It never was enough. Not even in the days of Jacob and Esau was it enough. They need the gospel. Ezekiel 37 verses 7 and 8 which is, was a prophecy of the first return from exile, but therefore can also apply for the second. This is the prophecy of the dry bones. Remember this? Son of man, can these bones live? So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. I believe that that is about where the nation stands today. The bones have come together. The sinews have covered them. Flesh is covering them. But there's no breath. There's no ruach. There's no spirit of God within them. They're there, but they're still desolate. And it will be until the day comes when God will return and restore them. We're not getting into that today, but it is coming. So in the meantime... Knowing this, that God has not rejected Israel, he's maintained a remnant, most of them are hardened, and yet they're starting to come back, what do we do with this? I'll give you three quick applications before we close today. Number one, we bless Israel. Genesis 12, verse 3, the Lord told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. This does not mean that you must of necessity support and stand behind every decision that the government of the nation of Israel makes or support every decision that every Jew around you makes. But it does mean that you retain a love and a support for those people. This is, needs to be one of the defining issues of evangelical Christians. If you want to talk politics for a minute, this is one of our main points. That's God's people. That's their land why? Because I have a bunch of reasons? Sure. But what's the first reason? Because God said so. Don't be embarrassed to step up and say it. Because God said so. Number two, pray for Jerusalem. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, pray for Jerusalem. Isn't it heartbreaking to look at the Temple Mount and see the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim mosque standing where the holy place used to be? Pray for them. It's a divided city. It's a fought over city. And there are many that want to raise it to the ground and scatter the Jews again. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And number three, as we saw in Romans 9 verse 3, honor the Jews. Love God's people. So we're going to talk about this next time. When you get to the middle of Romans 11, Paul gives a strong rebuke to Gentiles that get uppity against the Jews. And, oh, they rejected God, but we believed. He goes, you're just lucky to be here, pal. Honor them, love them, share the gospel with them, and never forget that what they need more than your support is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just say very kindly, Jesus is your Messiah and he loves you. He loves you very much. Take the time to share the gospel with our Jewish countrymen, our friends, even family perhaps. Because these are God's people. He's not rejected them. Most of their hearts are hardened. 
But the individual is not prohibited from coming to Christ. We're waiting for the day when the Lord restores them all. But in the meantime, the task of evangelism comes to us. And in fact, Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek, the Gentile. There's much more to be said on this subject, and we will. Next time, we will look at how we as Gentiles, if you are one of those, fit into this story. And then in a few weeks, we're going to look at how it's all going to end. And it's a remarkable story that's going to take us from the book of Zechariah to the book of Revelation. It's going to be great. Today, the point to take home is that Israel has been hardened in their hearts, but not rejected. Never rejected. And if God has been faithful to his covenant to Israel, despite the cross, then should we not have greater faith that he's never going to give up on us either? Philippians 1 verse 6 applies to us as individuals, but I think you can also apply it to God's chosen people. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will not break his word because his promises are dependent on his grace, not your works. So remember that when you consider his wayward people Israel. And remember it also when the accuser comes and whispers in your ear that you're no good because it's not dependent on your works, but on his grace. And God has not rejected his people.